We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, welcome this morning. Let's turn our Bibles to the Proverbs, please. Again, Proverbs, and this time the 22nd chapter of the Proverbs. Proverbs 22. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor than silver and gold. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will will be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Always keep that in mind. That's an economic principle that would help our leaders too, because it's nationally true, not just individually true. Verse 8, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow, and the rod of his anger will fail. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives his bread to the poor. Cast out the scoffer, and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. He who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the faithless. The lazy man says, there's a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, I would almost say, uh, be able to say something like this variation on this verse. The fearful man says, there is a lion outside. But notice it doesn't say fearful. That's true, but what does it say? The person who says that could also be charged with laziness because they've made an excuse. I'm not going to go out there where there's possibly some danger and I'm just going to sit at home and be lazy. I wonder if that has application to things other than lions in the streets, maybe viruses, possibly. Think about it. Don't be lazy, not a Christian virtue, that's for sure. Verse 14, the mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit. He who is abhorred by the Lord will fall there. Verse 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. He who oppresses the poor to increase riches, and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. Let them all be fixed upon your lips, so that you trust your trust may be in the Lord. I have instructed you today, even you, have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge, that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send you, send to you rather? Do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. Make no friendship with an angry man. With a furious man, do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Do not be one of those who shakes hands hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take away your bed from under you? Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Do you see a man who excels in his work? 
He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. May God bless the reading of those words of wisdom for which we are very thankful to have those in our possession. He has carefully written them down for us. Well, let me uh, come to our time of sharing Sunday school promotions here. And uh, let me get these out of my little folder. And uh, what we'll do um, is uh, call up the names of these young people. And I've, I've got to start. Let's see here. I'm thinking I shouldn't start with the youngest kids, you think? But I'm looking through this list and I'm saying, oh boy. (laughs) All right. Here's what we're going to do first, I think. Um, Get myself organized. Sorry about that. Um, What I'd like to do first is I'd like to call up uh, a young man who moved up Um, in two classes, in effect, this week, today. And his name is Micah Dowell. I'm going to invite Micah to come right up here in the front, and uh, let me explain what's going on here. So Micah was promoted to the uh, youth or young people's Sunday school class uh, today. So he had his first class with uh, Mr. Snowberger today and the others. And uh, we had a joke this morning. They're still learning his name in that class. But that uh, no, was fun. He, he enjoyed that little joke, too. Um, and then the other thing is that Micah has successfully finished the junior church program. And so he is going to be joining us adults in here on Sunday morning worship service. And uh, as we did last year, I want to give you, Micah, a little gift besides these two certificates here. So those are yours. And I don't know if you can see me down here. Uh, Maybe not on the camera. You got me on the camera? Good. Very excellent. So we're giving uh, Micah two things, the MacArthur Study Bible and a little notebook, kind of a a journal for him to put notes in. And we hope that you will get much good use out of both of those, okay? So why don't you stay up here because when I call the littler kids, they're going to want to stand with somebody bigger so they don't feel like they're up here all by themselves. Right, Chloe? Yeah. (laughs) All right, so let me go through the rest of these. Um, uh, Matthew Snowberger has been promoted to the toddler class. So I don't know if Matthew is around. No, is he upstairs still? Okay, well, we'll uh, forgive him this time. And then uh, let's see. We also have uh, Taylor, Jenny, and Chloe as well. Okay, Taylor's promoted to the toddler class and Chloe to the pre-primary so can you, she doesn't want to come up here. <laughs> you want to come up? Dad can come up with you. That's it. That's right. So for Taylor and for Chloe, I'll give these to Dad. Kyle, congratulations. Isn't it good to see these kids moving on up? That's right. Very good. Okay, now, we also have one here for Ian Collins, who is uh, promoted to the pre-primary, but I don't see any Collins today. Are they still not fully mended yet? Oh, okay. Well, Ian, if you're there watching, uh, we would have you up here, but uh, congratulations again. All right. And then I have, let's see. Oh, you know what? I also have uh, another one for Chloe. She is also promoted to the junior church program. So here's another one for you, brother. That's great. Um, Okay. Two more young people. One is Fiona, who is also promoted to the pre-primary program. You want to come up here, Fiona? You're not shy. There you go. There's your certificate. And then finally, Sam Carnes. Sam, come on up. Sam is promoted to the pre-primary class and the junior church program during the uh, morning worship service. So, Sam, thank you for coming right on up here. And here are your two certificates. And uh, I am going to give thanks for you folks and uh, just thank God for what he's doing in your lives There are other kids in the program, for those of you that are watching, but uh, they're staying in the same level that they were if it's a two- or three-year program. So these ones are the ones moving up up to the next one. So let's have a little prayer uh, just now. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for these young people. 
and for the continued growth that they're evidencing and the opportunities they have to learn more uh, in the scriptures. And I pray for them as uh, they, they continue to do that. We pray for Micah especially as he really moves up into uh, a greater level of growth and expectation in the adult uh, meetings in the church. And Lord, will you bless him, we pray. May you do that and uh, strengthen him and help him to learn and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior and for all these others as well. And Lord, as I have opportunity just now, I want to pray in thanksgiving for our teachers, all of the members in the church who are bringing uh, their uh, gifts to bear in the lives of these young people and spending time studying the Bible through the week to bring good lessons to these students so that they can learn and know uh, the basics of the scriptures. So many people are ignorant of even the most basic content of the Bible. We want to make sure that our kids are not among that number, but are well-educated in the most important book, and in fact, the very first book that was ever printed as a codex, the very first that was and only one from the God of heaven. And we'll thank you for this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a lot of material today that I could use. Um, I... I realized last week that I uh, didn't finish, actually, Genesis chapter 1 in terms of my speaking about it. I did write about it for you. So now I'm in this quandary. Do I go back to chapter 1 or do I, yes, probably you want me to do that. And then, uh, But I'm thinking, what should I do about chapter 3 here? So I've got all this material for you. Let's actually, you don't have the notes, although they are online, I will touch on a few things from Genesis chapter 1 again to uh, try to finish that exposition and also uh, bring out something that's going to connect with chapter 3 here quite importantly. So we're in Genesis chapter 1, and where we left off two weeks ago was that we looked at day 2 and the heavens in verses 6 through 8, and then we saw the firmament that was created out of the pre-existing material from day one that God had created out of nothing on day zero, if we could say it that way. So God created everything out of nothing, made a uh, heavens and earth that was unformed and unfilled, and then began to form and to fill it according to his good pleasure. So we saw a little bit about the meaning of the firmament, and I won't go back over that again except to say it has to do with the sky, the interstellar space, and the heavens, as we call them. On day three, he created the dry land, the seas, and the plant life. And this is where we picked up last week when we said, well, look at chapter two is actually rehearsing, if you will, or revising, reviewing, and looking at it from a different perspective, how God created man and woman in the Garden of Eden. And remember it said in chapter two, it should have been in verse number five or so, yeah, four and five, before any plant of the field was in the earth and any herb of the field had grown, so we found that in Genesis 2.4, the author backed up again and got a running head start to give a little bit of background about the creation of, of mankind. On day three, though, more detail here, starting in verse uh, 9, uh, it says that the uh, waters under the heavens were to be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. So God did somehow create an uplift of land masses or perhaps a depressing depressing of the land to form seabeds. In any case, the water ran off the ground and gathered into huge bodies of water, which we know as the oceans. Now, it may be that there was one large continent at that time. That's a, a common theory. I don't have any problem with that theory. I think the flood uh, and the upheaval uh, tectonically of that event could have easily been enough to rearrange the face of the earth so it is like we see it today. Um, but in any case, uh, the huge body of water or bodies of water that were created and that we have now are rather perfectly proportioned for us to have a temperate planet, aren't they? Can you imagine if there was no water on the face of the... Oh, man, it would be a tough place, <laughs> wouldn't it? It would be a tough place. In fact, there are some cities now you're reading on the news that I saw one has a three-week supply of water in their reservoir, and that's it. And they're scrounging around thinking, uh-oh, what are we going to do now? Um, so uh, better, better hurry up and figure it out, I guess. So 
In any case, water. Uh, God then implemented the design of grass, of, of herbs, of fruit trees, which had the means of reproduction in themselves. If you just think about that, when he says, let the earth bring forth grass, as simple as a blade of grass is, and the plant grass, it's not really simple, is it? It's extraordinarily complicated. And you let it grow up and it comes to a seed head and seeds itself and uh, plants you know, the, next, uh, the next plant over and you have the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth and it was so. Think of this, a continually rep- self-reproducing system that uses the nutrients in the ground and the, and the air and the sun and all of that to, to grow out of seemingly nothing into a marvelous plant or tree or bush or whatever, and then it produces a fruit in which is a seed that has all the genetic information in it to repeat the process yet again. Doesn't that just boggle your mind to think about it? It's amazing how this works. Do you know of a man-made machine that can reproduce itself that way? There are, there are some claims to some reproducing kinds of things that have been made by, by scientists. At best, they would be copycats of what God has already done, but even that, it's not really, it's not really the case. I mean, if you think of a mechanical machine, a little, a little metal thing that operates, a, a robot or something, it can't reproduce itself. It has no way to like eat and produce more metal and then you know create new parts that come together. It's just, it's just amazing. In this, it, it appears that God created a forest uh, of things on the earth instead of just one kind of each plant so that the whole earth, the whole surface of it, just began to just pop out green like a, you know, a, a time-lapse video of a chia pet, just like this, just green everywhere. Um, and instead of you know a plant here and a plant there and waiting years for the seeds to disperse and to green up the whole, the whole earth immediately. So it wasn't desolate for years until seeds reached every part of the globe. So the earth brought forth all the grass and the herbs and the trees and the fruits and, and everything, and God saw that it was good, verse 12 says. And the evening and the morning were the third day. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the reason we take that these days are literal days, 24-hour days, is that there was an evening and a morning. In an age of uh, a thousand years or a million years or a billion years, there's not an evening and a morning. There are many evenings and many mornings. Uh, These days are numbered days, which always when that occurs in the Bible, they're literal days as well. Now, if you're going to press me and say, well, is it 24 hours and zero minutes and zero seconds and zero hundredths of a second, I'm not going to say that, okay? Could the rotational period of the earth have been 23 hours and 58 minutes? Yes. 24 hours and two minutes? Yes. Um, when, uh, and, and the reason I say that is because when there are major uh, shakeups on the earth, like the uh, Sumatran earthquake, it, it actually can shift the earth slightly and change its rotational period because it's drawing in or pushing out mass, which, as you know, changes the spin speed of like a a, a figure skater, you know, arms out, arms in, speed is different. So that can occur. And I think with the flood, there was enough um, shakeup that it could have changed the length of the day by some period of time. I don't think it's hours. It's certainly not, you know, many days worth of change but just a little bit here and a little bit there. And I often also, just a speculation on my part, I wonder why the earth is tilted on its axis. Did that occur when the flood happened, when the upheaval occurred and everything just kind of sloshed over to the side? Can you imagine the energy that that took to accomplish all of that? It's just amazing. But in any case, we'll get to the flood later. Um, We see in day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars... God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. 
Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Now, of course, we know that the lesser light is lesser because it's reflective. It's not creative in terms of its light uh, generating power. It's just reflective of what the sun already generates. So God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And that brings us up to verse 19. So these lights had a purpose. Did you notice what the purpose was? To indicate signs and seasons, days and years, and to give light for the inhabitants of the earth. Remember the temporary light source from chapter 1 and uh, verse uh, 3. God said, let there be light. Remember that temporary, we called it a work light. Uh, That's no longer necessary at this point. Um, Now, be careful about reading too much into this. Like when, you know, some people say, oh, the, these lights are signs. And so what do they do? Astrology. And, uh, you know, all kinds of meaning up there in the skies. In fact, some people try to find the gospel in the stars. The gospel is not in the stars, my friend. The gospel is in the word of God. That's where it is. The heavens do declare the handiwork of God, they declare his deity and his eternal power, Romans 1 tells us, but they don't tell us that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead. Okay, you can't look at the constellations and say, well, yeah, I mean, you can force fit constellations into a story. And you can see, I mean, you probably can see a lot of different shapes up there in the stars, right? But um, now in terms of the seasons, I personally don't know how to read the stars to differentiate the four seasons. It's always fascinated me of people who can look to the sky and see, you know, the planets and the different stars and, well, it must be winter because we're in this configuration and all of that sort of thing. But others have studied that matter thoroughly and I let them be experts in that. What, what about the signs, though? Some, you know, are trying to find astrology-type signs in the stars. I think they're simply navigational aids. Uh, mariners use them, don't they? I need to get a lesson on that from uh, the Navy men here in the audience. Uh, it would be fascinating to me to learn some of that. Uh, another group of men used a star as a navigational aid to find a young boy in Bethlehem, didn't they? God saw to it that that was there for them. Uh, there are, are star arrangements we call constellations that are of interest to human observers, but we don't find the gospel there in those uh, arrangements of, of the stars. Uh, and by the way, those arrangements are somewhat artificial because if you were to, say, move about 100 light years over this way and look at them, what would you find? They, they would be all shifted out of proportion and it wouldn't look exactly like it does uh, on the earth from our perspective, kind of two-dimensionally just looking at what we're seeing straight on. Day five, day five, the sea creatures and the birds. Look at verse 20 of chapter one. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament. Okay, we're speaking about a language of appearance here. It looks like they're flying across the the blue paper that's up there. You know, but we know it's not that. It's, it's, they're flying in the midst of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded and according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. It was this God who created the fish of the sea, who later would tell a fisherman, cast your net on the right side of the boat. And they hauled in a number of fish that they could not even lift. Or in the end of the Gospels, when they caught the fish again and found them 153. That that God created all those fish. Can you just think of me of, with me of the teeming nature of the oceans? Have you ever watched uh, documentaries on the oceans and the, the things in the deepest parts of the ocean and the vast numbers of, of creatures there, the vast size of the blue whale, the little smallest of small 
plankton and, and uh, sharks and jellyfish, things that change colors, octopi. Just amazing to think about the life that God has created there, isn't it? And all of that should cause us to uh, give thanks to our God. Uh, I think it, I think bunches of each sort of animal uh, sprang into existence. It, it seems, although I can't prove that, it's a little bit of an odd situation because humans only two humans, and they from them came the whole race. It had to be theologically the case, but it doesn't have to be theologically that way for the animals. There could be lots of birds created simultaneously of the same species, and uh, and and think of them too. I mean. Uh, they don't swim in the in the sea of water. They swim, so to speak, in the sea of the air. A little thinner environment. It takes special powers to be able to do that. But these birds with an instinctual nature that can reproduce without outside assistance and even find the place of their birth again years later. Turtles do that too, by the way. They're born on a certain beach and 20-some years later they after seafaring for decades, they come back to the very place they were born to lay eggs for the next generation to come. How in the world do they do that? Well, God pre-programmed them to do that. That is one skilled programmer, I'll tell you that. Seven times along the way in Genesis, the text said that God saw the things that he had made and they were very good. They were good. At the end, it was all very good. Verse 31, it was tov me'od. It was exceedingly good. There was no shortcoming, no evil, no immorality, no moral filth, no death of any sort in the creation. It was, in a word, perfect. It was good as it was being built out, and it was good, very good, as it was done. So when someone asks you, why did God create evil? You answer them, God didn't create evil. God did not create evil. He did not create disasters. He did not create moral filth. He created a good world for two innocent people with free moral agency to live in, with known consequences if they did not follow the instructions that he had given to them. And as we'll see in chapter 3, that first couple turned things upside down. So we do not blame God for the problems that we have created. You look around and say, you know, religion is the problem. Yeah, well, all of man's religions that depart from God may be, but not the one that is the one that holds to God and to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But certainly there are far more problems than created by religion in this world. Wars and killings. Think of the brutality that you hear about on the news. The brutality that is glorified in the major media and by Hollywood. That is not the creation of God. Now, we can ask the question why God permitted evil. It's a related matter, but different. I find the arguments for the greater glory of God and the eventual greater good of man and the free will of man to be helpful, not all-encompassing in the ability to answer the question, but we have to trust God that he has good reasons for allowing bad into his very good world. We turn then to day six, and we see about the land animals and uh, then humans. It says in verse number 24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth, according to its kind, cattle, according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image. This is a summary statement here that's going to be elaborated later, as we saw in chapter 2. Uh, according to our, or in our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God gave them some instructions. I've given you every herb 
that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Herbivores. Salad for every meal. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So the final creations of God are his most magnificent, his most important. All the beasts, the cattle, the creeping things, bugs, and all of that sort of thing. And then God created mankind. Mankind, man and woman, the only two that are created in the image of God. None of the other creation was like that. The angels are not like that. The beasts, the cattle, the chimpanzees, the great apes are not made in the image of God. That means that we alone have the personal, spiritual, and moral likeness to God. People are persons, like God the Father is a person, God the Son is a person, God the Holy Spirit is a person. When I say person, I don't mean human. I mean a personal being, a being that has intellect and emotion and will. We have also things like built-in morality, a conscience, the ability to be self-aware. The ability that you have to communicate is part of the image of God. He built that into us so that we could learn and know the things of God and also communicate socially, educationally, uh, intimately with one another in a complex language. God created such that male-female pairs are able to reproduce and thus experience the blessing and the command of reproduction. And give a little bit of note there about whether it is a blessing or a command. I think they go together. Um, uh, without the one, you can't have the other. In addition, God told humans to rule the earth. They had charge of everything that God had made. So that's also unlike any other thing in the creation. We as humans are in charge of this planet. We are to steward it well. That is our God-given responsibility. Now, we have huge arguments about how to do that, don't we? Huge arguments. But we've got to come from a place, first of all, understanding God is the creator, the earth is the creation. Earth is not a, our mother, okay? Earth is not uh, you know, a god like Gaia or something like that. Earth is a place that God has given us to temporarily dwell until the new heavens and the new earth, and we are to manage it well. We're not to be lazy about it in our little corner of the universe. We talked about laziness earlier. We're to work hard. We're to improve it. We're to make it look nice. We're to keep it picked up. I can't stand when I drive along the highway or the exits, sometimes around Ann Arbor even now, and you just see trash piling up. I want to get out of the car and pick up the trash if I wouldn't get run over by the next guy that's coming through, you know, and the danger of all that. You understand that, but it just, it just bothersome. I mean, this is my city. Why does it look like this? You know, people come, you throw trash on the street and they drive by at night and their beer can goes out the window and they're this and that. And I, as soon as I see that, I've got a, that's a testimony to me. Go and pick it up. Don't be lazy. You know, you're a steward of this earth, and you might not be in charge of much. You might have just a postage stamp, but do the postage stamp well and help out in your community. Um, charge of everything. What a stewardship. Uh, so we're actually cr created in God's image is difference one, and then two, we're over it. Uh, God has put all things into our hands. The implications of that are too much to go into in the time we have this morning, for sure. Curious to me that God said in verse 26, let us make man in our image. What do you think that means? There's one more matter that God addressed, and that was the nourishment of the newly created beings. God assigned them the plants and fruit trees for food, and animals had the same for their diet. From the creation account, it appears that people 
and animals were herbivores, not carnivores or omnivores. Now, later on, God permitted the eating of animal flesh to people, and I think that probably has to do with the new, newly found harshness of the climate and the need for massive amounts of protein and uh, calories and fat in order to be able to survive in this environment that's not, you know, around the globe now is just not like a nice greenhouse. There's only limited number of, uh, a limited number of acres, so to speak, where it's like that, and even those are harsh in their own way. You come farther north and farther south, it gets cold, and, you know, you need to survive and, and be able to work very hard. So perhaps that's uh, an explanation for why uh, the dietary restrictions were changed. Day 7. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. I don't know how many times it has to say rested and stopped creating and all of that to get us to realize by day 6, <clears throat> it was all done. There was no more creation Going on. Oh, there were plenty of things that God was doing and sustaining his creation and so on behind the scenes, but no, nothing of that kind of work that had been done before. So God blessed and sanctified the seventh day, which we call the Sabbath from the Hebrew. It's the Saturday of the week. In the law given to Moses 2,500 years later, that day was set aside as a special day for the people of Israel as a sign of their covenant with God. Exodus 31.13, it reminded them that they also were to be set apart for God's purposes. We've labored to teach this before, say it again, we do not have a Christian Sabbath. Okay? Sunday is the first day of the week, Sunday is not Saturday. Saturday is the seventh day, and so there is no such thing as a Christian Sabbath. There is a day of worship that we believe is best, and that is the first day of the week. Why? Because it commemorates the resurrection of Christ. Every single week we come because we are people who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that is why we're here on Sunday. Also, we have the example in the New Testament, John in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Paul preaching in Acts chapter 20, Sunday evening, the first day of the week preaching actually very late in the evening, probably because they had to work earlier in the day. It's the normal flow of their schedule. And so that's why we worship on the first of the week. So as I concluded the message from last uh, two weeks ago in my notes, perhaps you read ahead on that, I recommended that you and your students learn about, of course, all of this in very, in very good fashion, in very detailed fashion, but also don't be afraid to learn about the cosmology that is believed by the majority of people today, to be conversant with those in our culture. But as you learn and hear about that, be very strong in your foundation in creationism, young earth creationism. Eat up whatever you can read about that. If you're interested in science, you should read all that stuff that you can get your hands on. Do not be fooled by the theory promoted today that amounts to nothing more than self-organizing chaos. Self-organizing chaos. That's what's more commonly called as evolutionary, well, the Big Bang plus evolutionary theory. Self-organizing chaos. That's just a learned form of pagan thought. But do learn how to speak kindly to people who are caught up in that foolishness, in that, in that darkened way of thinking. To, to think that everything came out of nothing because of no one and, and nothing. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, we, we debunked the theory of biogenesis or whatever that's called like years ago, okay? Non-life doesn't produce life. It's just clearly the case. Um, and be ready to give a God-honoring answer for their view. Do not be afraid of science, some of you can use science to glorify God, like many of the scientists of old did as they sought to figure out what is the design of God in his universe. 
And by doing so, they found great discoveries of God. God made the universe and you in that universe are his. You belong to him. Now, I'm not done yet, so don't pack up everything, okay? It's not even noon. Give me a minute here. Um, This connects to chapter 3 where I wanted to go today, and we certainly won't finish all of this, but I'll I'll introduce by the this uh, first section of my notes, which is the beginning of sin. The beginning of sin. Genesis is the book of beginnings, as we said in our introductory message, and it shows the genesis of evil as well. And that's what we see in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning. Doesn't sound good. People often ask, why does evil exist? And so I'm going to use this to introduce the text of chapter 3 before we get to it actually next week. Where does evil come from? That question is a hard question, and it comes with a lot of mental entanglements because it has a personal connection to us. The more evil you have experienced from the younger age, the harder it is for you to deal with this question, I think. If you're a young person whose parents abused you, if you have experienced a devastating crime, a tragic loss, or whatever, you understand what I'm saying. The more you have been personally touched by evil, the more difficult this question is. Often people express anger at God for the modern problems that were, remember, not created by God, but were created by whom? Humans. But let me say this. So first of all, we can say for sure, sin did not originate with God. God is holy. Our Lord is holy, Psalm 99.9. God does not tempt anyone, nor is he himself tempted by evil, but each one is tempted when he himself is led astray. That's James chapter 1. Or the scripture says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So sin did not originate in God or with God. Secondly, sin did not originate firstly in humans. So when when you think of the question, where did sin come from, you've got to go beyond. Why do you have to go beyond? Well, Romans 5.12 says, Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. It seems to me on my reading of that, that sin was a pre-existing thing that entered into the world through one man, through Adam. But it did not ultimately originate with that person. Now we could say, where did sin come from in the human race? Well, it came from Adam. But where did it come from before that? Before that. This leaves us with very few options if we're looking for the whodunit. Whodunit. Well, sin did not originate in God. It did not originate ultimately in humans, but sin did originate with Satan. I understand Isaiah 14, 12 to 15 to be an allusion to Satan, who in that passage is the power behind the throne of the king of Babylon. And God is, is pronouncing judgment upon the king of Babylon, and he goes, kind of talks right almost through him like a transparent piece of glass to speak to the power behind him. The front man for Satan was the king of Babylon, and so God talks then for some of those verses about Satan himself. And the text indicates that the devil moved from ultimate beauty to devastating pride. Desiring to take the place of God for himself, he said, I will be like the Most High. God expressed similar thoughts about the king of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, in Ezekiel 28, 12 to 15, which indicates the origin of sin in this phrase. It says, you know, you were the seal of perfection and all of that until iniquity was found in you. In both cases, the exalted description seemed to move beyond the mere human realm. Others do disagree, but... Such disagreement does not change the main point that Satan did something to introduce sin into the human race. Okay, are you with me so far? 
it seems to me that when people ask the question about the problem of evil and the origin of sin and, and, and really the problems, plural, of evil, in the face of all of that and the suffering that's in the world that have tripped up so many people, we have to be reminded that sin had a supernatural origin. Its origin is not explicable by mere natural means. How exactly it came to be is somewhat beyond explanation. It's not nature. It was not nurture. It was beyond the visible realm. It's somehow inexplicable how sin entered a perfect creation. Why would people in a perfect creation want something else so badly that they would break the one command given to them by their creator? Why does Satan think it's ultimately profitable for him to sin and to induce others to sin? What sense does it make? It's senseless. The explanation of sin is not of this world. The origin of sin is like other supernatural events, miracles, which we cannot explain how God did. So can you explain how God created the heavens and the earth? No, you can say that he did it, but how exactly? Did he break the law of physics of the conservation of mass and create out of nothing something? Well, he's not subject to those laws that we are as creatures. How did he part the Red Sea? Or how does he raise the dead? Or even, even this more close to home, how did he give you spiritual life? Just how did he do that? We can explain what happened and sometimes the means and attendant circumstances about what happened. For example, God told Moses, hold out your staff over the sea and divide it. It will be divided, Exodus 14, 16. You had the work of the Spirit of God applied to you through the Bible and its teaching. God delivered the good news about Jesus Christ to you. He opened your eyes to the desirability of Christ over sin, to the desirability of forgiveness over guilt, to the desirability of life over death. He did this through the word of God. But exactly how did he work that change? In the final analysis, although we can explain more about illumination and and regeneration and all of these sorts and faith and so on, faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's word, ultimately I do not know how the Spirit moves convincing men of sin. Now, the sin of Satan was indicated in the prophets, but there's another passage. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 6. That passage teaches us that a young convert is not to be elevated to the place of elder in the church, lest he fall into conceit and the condemnation of the devil, pride. He may become proud and fall into that same Condemnation. We can say then that Paul understands the devil's judgment comes because of his pride. And when the devil teaches his followers, remember, when a student is taught, he becomes like his teacher. So if the teacher is full of pride and he teaches his followers, what do they become like? Full of pride as well. And, and pride, it's manifested this very often this way, perhaps exclusively we could say sin is pride. Sin is about self, and that's what pride is all about as well. Now, the devil was an archangel created by God, along with all the other holy angels. Somehow iniquity was found in him for some inexplicable reason, and he fell into a fixed state of evil. He convinced some others to follow along with him, Perhaps a third of the angels, Revelation 12.4 might indicate that. These have now become what we know as demons. There is no redemption for any of them. Let me just mention, as we close, this about this awful, amazing being that God made and then iniquity was found in him. The only place the Bible uses the phrase angel of light refers to the devil. He is a clever creature for whom humans are no match.
His servants, human servants, run around portraying themselves also as servants of righteousness, but they are not. They are themselves the slaves of sin and can only promise you one state more slavery to sin. And this is why the Bible says to us in James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Watch out for him because he's out there running around creating all kinds of havoc. He approached God one day thousands of years ago and God said, where have you been, Satan? Well, I've been roaming around the earth and you see this guy, Job. And you know the whole disaster that ensued after that. 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Some people literally, some Christians, professing Christians today say that the devil is bound. The Bible says that he roars like a a lion seeking prey to devour as he roams the surface of the earth. The whole, the, the world. And Luke twenty two thirty one, a servant of God as great as Peter, Jesus said, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Don't mess around, my friends, with Satan, with the demons, with the world, and with all of his students. It's a dangerous business. Yeah, that's correct. It's darkness, darkness, darkness. Where did sin come from? It had a supernatural origin. That's why it's so difficult to explain. Well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, next time we have the privilege to study what happened with this and the human race. And although it's very difficult and can be some depressing, it is necessary for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the marvel of your creation that we looked at in the first half of our message today. And then we also are grateful that you've alerted us to the existence of this evil being in whom iniquity was found, and he's the source of all that iniquity in the world. We know that Adam is guilty for what he did, and Eve as well, and all the rest of us by imputation and by personal practice. But we thank you that the gospel of Christ promises deliverance through faith in the one who gave himself for us, that we might have eternal life. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the gospel, the good news of Christ that delivers us from this wretched state in which we have found, our, have found ourselves. Help us to fly to him, to appeal to him, to love him, to give ourselves to him, to turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.